Join me in prayer, please. Father, we have been recognizing your holiness in song. And now I pray, Father, as we continue to recognize what it means to worship you because of your holiness, that we might treat you as holy, treat your word as holy, and treat each other in a proper way that we might reflect our commitment to your holiness and how you have designed us to live. There is no other way to really practically worship your holiness than to live our lives carefully before you. And so I pray this morning, Father, that you would captivate us fresh with the urgency of this word and that our hearts would be inclined to repent. Oh God, we are sinful people. Your servant's a sinful man. And we recognize that we are handling the truth of your holiness. And we are inadequate, but yet, Lord, you have commissioned us to share the truth with each other. So I pray that you will take this, your truth, and you will move our hearts and our lives to desire to rely on your strength to be changed people. Oh God, how desperately our church must change. How desperately my life must change. How necessary it is for us to be transformed, oh God. And how far we have fallen short of the glory of God. And how patient and loving you are toward us. And so, Father, I pray for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't think I've ever faced a more challenging lineup of sermons in my life. Hell, sex, marriage, and the sanctity of life. Now, how's that for a lineup? And aside from God's grace and help, I don't know what I would do. I would become undone. But, you know, um, I want you to know that uh, I love the truth of God's word. I love God's word. I love God. And I, I have promised you from day one that I would tell you the truth. And I would not shy away from telling the truth as I understand it in God's word and I love that you bring your Bibles because you can check and see if I'm telling you the truth and I realize as well in all of these in this whole lineup of sermons and uh, I realize that it's about real people as well real people real lives real challenges I understand that um, uh, I understand we are real hearts we have, we have people in our lives. We are the people in our lives. And um, so I know that these matters touch very sensitive areas in your life. And forgive me if at any point I feel I, I seem ungracious or unloving because it, it, it's the farthest from the truth. I, I love you and uh, I can't begin to tell you how much I love you. And I love you enough to tell you 
what I really believe the God, what God says. And, and that's, I, I know that you, I, I think you know that, but I want to keep telling you because these are not easy things, and I know that. And, and tra- tragically, um, this matter of human sexuality, you know, tragically what was designed to include people in the act of creation, imagine the God of glory so graciously and magnanimously would include us in the act of creation and bring great joy and praise and thanks to God because of his amazing gift of sexuality has become a very flawed and degrading and distorted and harmful version of all that God wanted it to be. Human sexuality, God's way. What you think really matters about this subject and as always more importantly, what God thinks what God tells us about this matter really matters. It really touches the core of our lives. Uh, so much so that I, I fully believe this statement is absolutely true. That sexuality, God's way, is central to what it means to be humans created in the image of God. And I'm not being dramatic when I say that. I, I trust I'm not. That sexuality, God's way, is central to what it means to be humans created in the image of God, distinct from all other creation, which is why Satan's agenda against God's designed sexuality is so relentless and so present and so powerful. Sexual immorality is the choice to dehumanize oneself. To embrace a journey toward this is not who you were meant to be. To be given over to degrading yourself. So at issue in our world is whether or not there is a human design, a manifesto. And from what I see of the world around us and the worldview of the people around us, they, it would seem that they don't believe there's a human design, that there's a correct human manifesto because people wouldn't live the way they live if they believed that. They wouldn't design ideas that they design if they truly believed that. But I want to say to you that the Bible absolutely presents a human design and a manifesto. And at issue for Christians, because this is not really primarily a secular problem. This is an immense problem within the church of Jesus Christ. Immense problem. At issue for Christians is how seriously we are to be about that human design that we find in the scriptures on the matters of human sexuality. Matters of marriage, the matter of gender distinctiveness, the matter of human value, etc., Are we going to uh, commit ourselves to a design that is given to us by God? Are we going to to allow our sensitivities and our emotions to determine the journey forward for us? In your worldview, or is your worldview based on the Bible or your own 
subjective sensitivities. And I want to say to you this morning that it is imperative for us to beware of people who are currently tearing apart long-held interpretations of Scripture to twist them in dis- and distort them into saying things that they traditionally never said just to fit into a contemporary preferred meaning. Beware of this. Beware of those who are taking the biblical design for human sexuality and no longer basing it on a moral standards as set by a holy God, the designer and creator in his word, but rather are twisting the ideas to, to, uh, to come in concert with the way things are today in our world. Beware of certain phraseology that you will hear or read out there in current evangelicalism like expanding the welcome of Jesus. Beware of that kind of phrase or of the third way of seeing things. There's some who are for some things and some who are against some things, but there's a third way where we can happily live together in the same boat. Beware of people who are talking now about doctrinal conversations. All of these things are new code words and phrases for did God really mean what he seemed to say in his word? And so the people in church movements who are changing the way we once believed about things are using the Bible, or should I say misusing the Bible, to support what they say. So when I come before you this morning and say to you, I'm just going to teach you from the Bible, most people are saying that. You have to be very discerning today to make sure that people are really teaching you from the Bible and not using the Bible to somehow say what it doesn't mean. And a violation, by the way, of the moral standards of human sexuality as laid down by God's word, as a new and young writer who I highly endorse, at least at this moment, Kevin DeYoung, says, is precisely the sort of sin that characterizes those who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. How important is this matter of human sexuality? It is the difference between heaven and hell in our lives. And so um, this morning I want to dig in with you and the, the plan of attack is to, is to uh, first of all look at the true design that God has laid out in his word. If you want to learn what is counterfeit, you don't study the wrong things, right? Bankers will tell you, you study the right thing. And those who understand about counterfeit currency have first of all become experts at understanding what the real thing is. And so my plan of attack is to show you what I really believe the Bible teaches as the real thing in terms of God's design for human sexuality. And then I'm gonna show you why it's being distorted. 
And then I'm going to define with you from the word of God what sexual immorality really is. And then I'm going to try to answer the question, what should we do about this? So uh, let's dig in. And I need you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2 because the human design starts at the front of the book. God's design, uh, I want to tell you the truth about God-approved sexuality. And we find it from uh, Genesis chapter 2. It begins at verse 18. I want to read to you through to verse 25. The Lord God said, are you there with me? It's at the front of the book. This is the easiest book to find. It in Revelation. It's at the back of the book. Everything else is hard in between. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, I want to stop here for a second because from the get-go, God's design is to make a complete distinction between the animal kingdom and the human creation. We are not animals. We are a completely different order of creation, right from the beginning design. Uh, Now, for Adam, there was found no suitable helper, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, or that flesh, he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, Woohoo! Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. In fact, this is the first place in the Bible that hallelujah was ever stated. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now you're talking. Can you imagine waking up out of a deep sleep and all you have ever seen is animals in your life and all of a sudden standing beside you is the quintessential creation of a woman standing there in all of her glory staring at you. Now, guys, this is a great moment. So, and I'm I'm not just making this up. I realize you said to me I'd tell you what is in the Bible. Uh, When he said, this is bone of my bones, this is an emphatic, excited guy. He is really excited about what he's telling God now. Now, God, now you've you've really done it. Now you've fixed things. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This This is the honeymoon moment. This is the night moment. This is what, guys, we are supposed to treat our wives like for the rest of our lives. Every day you wake up, it's like, Shazam. (laughs) Praise the Lord. God, you've done a wonderful thing. I do that every morning, don't I, Lynn? (laughs) Oh, man, you're not going to believe a word I say to you today. (laughs) And then it says this, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his flesh and they will become one flesh. This is a really key theology for design here. Just immense. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, listen. 
um, the first concept we have to understand about design is this, that an official marriage is one that is between one man and one woman. Now, I know you say that, uh, we've heard that, but let's, let's open this up. I want you to understand that the key and central truth that is taught here is about one flesh. And this is critical for us to understand design and to be able to have an apologetic for, for original design and what God had in mind. We are called to be in our relationship, in, in the relationship of a man and a woman, one flesh people. This is God's original design for, for the, uh, the, the human creation and for uh, the, the further creation of humanity. It was all about this theology of one vision. One flesh, critical. We are one flesh people. Now, I want to unpack that for you so you can see what God has done here. This little thing that he did with the taking the flesh out of Adam and making a woman, this is not just an interesting, cute little story. This is the theology of human design. This is the critical point. Now, stay with me here. Uh, at first, what God has said is in, in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a help, helper suitable for him. Now, this word helper suitable, uh, you know, from the old King James, help meet and all that kind of stuff. Listen, it's the Hebrew, Hebrew two Hebrew words, etzer connectu, which literally means I am making for you a helper suitably opposite. That's what it means. I'm making a helper suitably opposite of the same kind, but in a correspondence in identity. Uh, there is going to be uh, two people who are going to be opposite in design. Okay? particularly and critically important in terms of the very first understanding of this design. And secondly, what we need to see in this whole creation design, uh, we have to go back to Genesis 1, the first chapter, because Genesis chapter 1 is a summary of the creation, the, the creation week and what God did. And then by the time we get to Genesis 2, uh, God is now giving us some specifics of what actually took place and, and giving us some more detail about creation. But we need to understand that there was a command given in this one flesh people concept. And that command was found in verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. The point is this, that this tandem, this tandem of man and woman uh, was now needing to have the potential to be fruitful and multiply. I'm, I'm, the reason I'm using the term potential is because ultimately fertility it belongs to God. But each Marriage, each uh, coming together of man and wife in the human design must have the potential to be fruitful and multiply. And the only way that potential can take place is if it's a man and a woman. Otherwise, there's no potential to meet the command that God gave to be fruitful and multiply, which means to be disobedient to the command of God. Also, in this particular text, in verse 24 of chapter 2, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father. What's the reason? It's not just some, you know, to make a, a cute marriage story that a guy packs his bags and leaves his house and goes and gets a woman. 
This is theology. This is far loftier than a simple, cute love story. This is about the one flesh people reality. This is the idea of an official, customary act of a man leaving to pursue the part of him missing. Okay, the original creation design is that God took a chunk of flesh out of the guy and made a woman. And that design concept is what continues to drive the idea of bringing men and women together. It is the man's pursuit of what is missing. And what's missing is a woman. That's the design of God. That's what this one flesh, it's all about, and it's consummated ultimately in the sexual act. That the, the design, the theological design, the conceptual design, the idea of this one flesh reunion is what the man and the woman thing is all about. You can't mess with that. This is a, a very intricate design of the creator himself of the creature that he made. And so you have this uh, now marriage reunited and the idea ultimately is to conceive children and enjoy each other. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. As one writer put it, and very well, uh, a man and a woman are not blood, bloodline, they are fleshline. And fleshline is infinitely higher than bloodline in its intimacy. A um, husband and a wife are fleshline with each other, not bloodline. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This makes a lofty, lofty theological and practical concept of what the original sexual design was all about. And common law doesn't count. And the reason I say that is not because I'm inventing it, it's because Jesus said it. Do you remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus encountered this, uh, this Samaritan woman at the well? And he, said, he had a conversation with her and he said to her, go and get your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And in John chapter 4, verse 18, he said, you're telling the truth. You've had five husbands, and the one you currently live with is not your husband. Because just because you're living together does not mean you are viewed as married by God. Now, I know that cuts against the grain of our secular thinking. We think that the sexual act means that people are just automatically partners and married. They're not in God's, in God's sight. This is a very, very particular design of God that has been laid out for us here. And, and uh, many would say to you, well, you know, the problem with God's sexuality and the design of the Bible and all of that is God is a real big prude. I mean, if you follow God's ways, your life is going to be so boring and so, so horrible sexually. Listen. Nothing could be further from the truth. In God's word, 
um, complete freedom within marriage to fully enjoy God's gift of sexual. It's a gift that God has given to people. And, and the emotional wholeness of a life of sexual purity that sexual purity brings is laid out in the scriptures. I'm not going to take the time to go through this with you, but I've just given you a, a smattering of ideas. Proverbs 5, 15, Ecclesiastes 9, 9. The whole song of songs is about the enjoyment of a gift of sexuality. I mean, those who follow God's design, uh, the picture is about lavish fulfillment. God's design is quite sexually progressive, actually, and fully satisfying within the confines of committed love. Within the confines of marriage, God, the full gamut is available of sexual expression. God's not Victorian, although I'm not sure why people even use that phraseology. I don't think it was all that prudish in the Victorian day. I think they were kidding themselves just like every other culture. And why all of this intricate design, Malachi 2.15, why stay with the wife of your youth? Why one flesh, it says there? Because God was looking for what? You know, godly offspring. This is about kingdom building. Intentional fruitfulness, specifically godly fruitfulness, God approves sexuality as kingdom building. And God's about the building of his kingdom. So there you have, this is God's design. This is the truth summarized about God's design. Now, how did something designed to be so good and so right become so messed up? Man's deconstruction of God's design. How, how did that come to be? Well, it's about the truth suppressed and the glory exchanged for de degradation. There is an agenda in this world that is satanically driven and humanly cooperated with, and that is quite simply this, to mar the image of God, to demean the glory of God, and to make humans into, into disposable freaks. That's what this agenda is all about. And it has become very politicized in our world. Sadly, the Western leaders, the Western government leaders are, are now joining in in this deconstruction of God's beautiful design. So we find ourselves with governments opposing the things of God as well. And here's how it happens. When man exchanges God for idols, sexual design confusion always results. You can, you can bank on this, that where there is sexual perversion, and gender confusion, there will always be idolatry. Turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. I, I want to show you here something critically important for us as we continue to go forward in these ideas. In Romans chapter 1, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes in answering the question, how did things get so messed up in the world? Um, Canada in 2015 is not the only culture that's ever been messed up. When the Apostle Paul was writing to the Romans, he was writing to a very messed up culture. It's been messed up for a long time. It's been messed up since Adam and Eve sinned. And one of the big mess, mess ups is sexual immorality. And so, um, when man, the, the, the presentation here in Romans chapter 1 is, is an understanding of how in the world did all this get so messed up. 
And it answers the question in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who, and what is it? Suppress the truth by their wickedness. It's intention. When you suppress the truth, that means the truth was somehow available to you, but you have intentionally suppressed it. It's somehow there, but you are making an intentional decision to suppress it. And there's a critical piece of theology that's taught here that is absolutely important for the mission endeavor, understanding the mission endeavor, understanding the world, understanding worldview and culture and all of that, and that is simply this, that according to that text in Romans chapter 1 and other places, God has revealed himself to every single human being in this world by his general revelation. It says there what might be known about God, his invisible qualities, his character's nature, is already displayed in creation. So that it says there, man is without excuse. Everywhere there is man and creation, there is the uh, proclamation of the general revelation of God. If mankind, in the presentation of the general revelation of God, chooses to turn their back on that revelation and reject it, suppressing the truth that is placed before their very eyes, in the, the, it says there, the wrath of God will be revealed. So taking the natural revelation of God and suppressing it leads to the revelation of God's wrath. Taking the natural revelation of God and responding to it, several verses before, says that God will reveal a righteousness which is the gospel of salvation to those. The turning point in people's lives anywhere in the globe is what they do with the natural revelation of God. Do you suppress the truth by the choices to live in abject opposition to that natural revelation? Or do you choose to embrace it in which case God will make more of his revelation, his revelation of his righteousness known to man, a gospel of salvation? So if you want to understand the missionary endeavor, that's it. And so there are fallouts to suppressing the truth of the natural revelation. And we see the design of God in natural revelation. You can look at the animal kingdom and see the design of God. You can look at the animal kingdom and see the design of partnerships, the, the design of, of procreation. All of that's available and, 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 and obvious before us. And so you have this. And then there are, there's a fallout for this. If you choose to suppress the truth that is there, the natural truth that is there, then God's wrath will be revealed to you and there are, he'll give people over to what they want. And so you have here flawed thinking in verse 22. You have exchanging God for lesser gods in verse 23. You have sexual disorders, degrading bodies with other bodies in verse 24. You have believing that joy and fulfillment can be found in created things, verse 25, which is a lie. You have uh, shameful, unnatural sexual expressions with the same sex, lesbianism and homosexuality versus natural being what God established for human beings at creation. 
You have depraved minds that are incapable of making accurate assessments of the world, morality, or their place as humans, freewheeling and evil, verses 28 through 31. Those that are making our current laws, our, our current government, are living these broken, uh, making these broken choices and are therefore incapable of making laws in terms of morality that would be a standard according to God. So it shouldn't surprise us that we're faced with a public school curriculum that's completely abhorrent to God in terms of sexuality. Those who are creating and designing these ideas have already been given over to a depraved mind because of the wrath of God, because they suppress the truth that is available to them naturally because of God's creation. And then sadly, in the last verse, verse 32, there are those who actually approve of people who practice such things. To those churches that are endorsing the exchanging of natural for unnatural relationships, are, they're becoming the fruit of God's wrath themselves and not his blessing. Just this week, another major evangelical church decided that it would embrace and bless unions of same-sex people. The major, the biggest leading, biggest evangelical church in San Francisco. And so we have on our hands a real disaster. And not long ago, and all of you know this is true, that sexual immorality was a criminal offense in Canada. And now the church is decriminalizing sinfulness. How far we have come. How big a deal is this? Well, we, we really need at this point to define sexual immorality, don't we? I've given you a list of, of uh, in sexual immorality, I've given you a list of, of a variety of scriptures. What is sexual immorality and how big a deal is it? Now, I've, I've recorded for you eight vice lists in the Bible, and there are eight. I suppose it won't shock you to find out that in every vice list, sexual immorality is included. In every vice list, in all eight of them. Now, every sin is not mentioned in all of those vice lists, but every single one of them, sexual immorality is included. So how big a deal is it to God? If he would choose to insert it into every single vice list that is recorded in the scriptures... Kevin DeYoung writes it this way, you would be hard-pressed to find a sin more frequently, more uniformly, and more seriously condemned in the New Testament than sexual sin. So if you're out there this morning, you should be now asking the question, well, this, we read this terminology, sexual immorality. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and see the wording ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll remain here for the rest of our time. Uh, verse 9 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And now he's going on to define who the wicked are that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offender, offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you're saying to me, hey, there's a big list of sins there. You seem to be harping on one thing. Yes, I'm harping on one thing today. That's the topic. Sexual immorality. I, I'm well aware of there's other sins. And so don't feel like I'm coming down on you. Yeah, like there is only one topic today. It's about sexuality. It's about human sexuality and God's design. And so we're looking at the distorted and degraded uh, uh, what God's gift is. So what's the word sexual immorality? So we can understand the nature of it. It's two words in our Bibles, but it's one word in the original language. It's the word porneia. 
You know this word. You see it. You use it. It's used in our culture all the time. It's a root word for pornography, porneia. That's what sexual immorality, that's whenever you see the term sexual immorality in your English Bible, it's the word porneia. And porneia is defined this way, any form of sexual contact, real or virtual, between creatures who are not in a heterosexual marriage. That's the definition of sexual immorality. Now, um, I actually added the word virtual, okay, the, the term... The term is really described as any form of sexual contact between creatures who are not in a heterosexual marriage. I'm talking about real or virtual. And the reason I added the word virtual because I wanted to uh, appropriately honor Jesus. So it's not my word, it's Jesus' word. And I want you to see it with your own eyes. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 5, because we've, we've got to get a grip of this, of what really uh, is, is um, um, what God is very opposed to. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus says this, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so I, I think it's appropriately uh, placed here to describe porneia because this is how Jesus describes it. Any form of sexual contact, whether it's real or whether you're just looking between creatures who are not in a heterosexual marriage. We have a huge problem on our hands in the Christian church, and in particular in Calvary Baptist Church. One of the besetting sins that is in this church and has a death grip in this church is sexual immorality, is pornography. I know this for a fact. Uh, men uh, after man is battling this, and some not battling it, they're just surrendering to it. And uh, perhaps you don't realize this, but, but this, is, uh, this uh, definition of sexual immorality is, is incredibly broad. And... and uh, is listed as those things that put us on a journey toward hell and not toward heaven. And um, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he gives this listing and uh, he makes the point here that uh, no case can be made from the scriptures that God has made anybody contrary to his design for sexuality or any sinful offenders to be the way they are. You're how you, you, we face out there people saying, well, you know, this is the way God made me. Listen. In no other area of sin would we accept that statement. We don't accept the idea that God made some people to be murderers and God made some people to be liars and God made some people to be thieves and God made some people to be substance abusers. Do we believe that? We absolutely don't believe that. It's a choice of individuals to sin against God. And each of these cases, each of these vices that are put forward are put forward as choices that people make to go against the design of God. The reason I know that, in verse 13 it says, the body is not made for, meant for porneia, but for the Lord. The body was never designed for porneia. 
Now, let me be quick to jump in here and say to each of you, like, temptation is not a sin. The whole advertising empire survives on temptation. That's how marketing is done. Temptation is not a sin. Same-sex attraction is not a sin. Heterosexual attraction is not a sin. But giving in to it in reality or virtually is a sin. And the point that is made clear in Scripture that is outside of marriage, all sexuality is porneia. Whether it's pre-marriage, whether it's post-marriage, whether it's in marriage, whatever it is, all sexuality outside of marriage is porneia, sexual immorality. And in fact, in Acts 15, 20, the early church was instructed to preclude membership from membership anyone who was actively and impenitently practicing porneia. The, the idea of, a, of evangelical churches inviting sexually, practicing sexually immoral people into membership was never envisioned by Christ in the early days. Now, let's make sure we understand clearly, and, and we're going to have to wrap this up, that um, in this uh, letter to Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about porneia. He says, neither the uh, porneia nor idolaters, and actually, he didn't need to say adulterers or male prostitutes or homosexual offenders because that's included in the term porneia. That's included in the term sexual immorality. But... I presume the Holy Spirit, seen in advance what people are like, articulated, for example, it's, it's as if Paul is saying, you know, this broad term sexual immorality, I'm, I'm suspecting that some of you are going to try to do some wiggle room here, and I'm going to tell you that there's no wiggle room, all right? I'm going to talk, tell, talk to you about what sexual immorality really is. I'm going to give you some for instances, as in adultery. Now be sure he's... he's, he's Looking here to be sure there's no subjective limitations on the prohibition. He's including specific examples, and that's not, but not limited to just these examples. And the one is adultery. The first is adultery. Now, let me just say something right here. Married people, uh, adultery is simply this. Married people having sexual relations of any kind outside of their marriage. We know that. But I also want to include, because Jesus has included, that anyone who is practicing Virtual sexuality is committing adultery against their spouse. Do we understand that? We, we better understand that. When you open up your computer terminal and you go and you search for a pornographic site and you watch that site, you are in that moment committing adultery against your spouse. Because that virtual event is no different than if you left your house and went over to somebody else's house and had sex with another woman. It's no different. You are actually committing adultery with a virtual woman on the computer screen. That's what adultery is. And then it talks here about uh, male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. Listen, the, the two real words there are effeminate and sodomites. I, I presume that it's broad enough to talk about uh, gender confusion, transvestite, um, tra transvestites, um, um, transsexual, the whole gamut of, of this 
ruining of the design of God, homosexual practice, the sodomite, active, passive. It's whatever it is, it's egregious instances of suppressing the truth about the way the Creator has made us. And it visually opposes the profound mystery of Christ and His church. It's the antithesis of God's visual illustration of His covenant relation with human beings, Christ and the church. And marriage of two same-sex people doesn't fix it. Because there is no such thing as that kind of marriage. There is only one kind of marriage. This is already designed in Genesis. It doesn't fix it. It magnifies and lengthens the brokenness. It ceremonializes the mockery of God's beautiful design and officially condones what God has not joined together. And brothers and sisters, if we really take God's word seriously, we just can't be about this. We just can't. We can't be about sexual immorality. We can't be about heterosexual sexual immorality. We can't be about homosexual sexual immorality. We can't be about pre-marriage sexual immorality. We can't be about post-marriage sexual immorality. We can't be about internal marriage sexual immorality. We can't be about pornography. Do we understand that all of those practices are placing myself on the highway to hell? That's the truth. No matter what our sensitivities are, our sensibilities are, and God can deliver us from that, because do you know what he says here in verse 11? And that is what some of you were. This is the beauty of Christianity. Christianity rescues us from this. It heals brokenness. It doesn't leave us in brokenness. So what should we do in verse 18? It says, flee from sexual immorality. It ruins that part of you designed for the most intimate bodily communication between persons. Listen to the, the young people in here. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. What does that mean? So profound, so blessed, so much a gift, so delicate is a sexu- our sexuality that to tamper with God's design is to ruin that part of you that was made for the most intimate human communication possible. If you are pure, protect your purity the way you protect your life because it will be an immense blessing to you. I couldn't give better counsel. And so... um, It falsely advertises the Lord who lives in us. He paid for our bodies with his precious blood. And God only shares the ownership of you and me. If we're in Christ, he only shares the ownership of you and me with our spouse. That's the only time he'll ever share ownership with your spouse, with nobody else. That's a profound thing. That tells you how important our spouse is. That that tells you how 
blessed and how much God values our marriages that Jesus Christ would give his life on the cross to purchase us and then turn around and say to us, but I will share you with your spouse. That's powerful. That's profound. And what's the, what's the call on, on God's people in this whole issue of sexual immorality to prevent it? Celibacy. Celibacy is a biblical alternative for people who have not yet found or are unable to find a permanent partner of the opposite sex. You're saying, Rick, that is so hard. That's, listen, Christianity is hard. Is Christianity easy? If you think Christianity is easy, you're not a Christian. God asks us to do things that are impossible. All of this is humanly impossible. The Christian life is humanly impossible. The only way it can be accomplished is through the strength of Jesus Christ. So of course it's difficult. Of course we look at this and say, how could I ever do that? You can't do it. But in Christ you can. So we're to flee from immorality. We're to repent of sexual immorality because failure will always bring suffering. And churches that misrepresent or suppress the truth will have their lampstand removed from its place. That's what Jesus said. You tamper with this? You know, I read one article this week, and they said, why, why doesn't the church, just, instead of driving off the cliff of, to oblivion at 20 miles an hour, why don't they just, tell, why don't they just say they're going to turn completely against the Bible and drive off the cliff 100 miles an hour? Because if you start taking little pieces, whether you drive off the cliff 20 miles an hour or 100 miles an hour, it'd just be better you drive off faster. And it is so in our lives as well. So brothers and sisters, this is a sin that is killing the church of Jesus Christ. Sexual immorality. And it is thwarting the great blessing of pouring out of God's spirit that he would do if our lives truly hallowed be his name. Our Father and our God, we repent Today is a day of important repentance. Today is a day of change. Today is a day to flee from sexual immorality. Today is a day of turning our backs on what we were doing last night and never doing it again. Because last night we were on the highway to hell and if we keep this up, we will go to hell. So Father, I just pray that the seriousness of this matter would invest itself in our hearts through your spirit for your great name's sake and that the glory of God might, might once again be the true Shekinah of the church because, Lord, increasingly it's Ichabod and we are so sorry. Please help us, Lord. Please help us. Oh God, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. At the time of Ezekiel the prophet, God's people were in big trouble. And um, God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel. And he said to him, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here. 
things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. He invites him to dig a hole in the a little hole in the wall of the temple to look in, see what's going on. And uh, he says, son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall. And he says, go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and I looked. And I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. And in front of them stood 70 elders, can you imagine, of the house of Israel, of Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. They were blessing the abominations of the people. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each, of the shrine, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He says, you'll see them doing worse, more detestable things than this. He says, do you see that in the portico of the altar were about 25 men, and with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, they were bowing down to the sun in the east. Imagine turning their backs on God, the elders, and worshiping the sun. This is God's people. All because they said, you know what? God can't really see what we're doing. So I wonder this morning if someone bore a hole in the wall of your room and took a look at what was on your computer screen when you think nobody's around or what you're looking at on TV or what you're reading. What would they see there? What's portrayed on the wall of your computer terminal. Let me say to you, brothers and sisters, because I truly, truly love you, how many marriages are we going to continue to put at risk? How many families are we going to risk? How much longer are you going to risk the faith of your children because of your private sin that isn't private? God sees everything. And the people around you are not fooled. We're going to talk about marriage next week. Today is a day of getting very serious with our sin. Today is a day. We'll be here to talk and pray. You know, God is a redemptive God. He wants to get you out of this. God will save you from this. And you know what? I don't expect to see many people come down and talk to us for prayer. You know why? because you don't want to be outed. Hey, this is not a place of judgment. This is a place filled with sinners, a whole room of sinners who have this amazing relationship with God who forgives us of our sins and helps us to start over and live in a way that pleases God. Hey, maybe you'll come and pray with us. It doesn't really matter whether you come and pray with one of our pastoral staff or not, but I'm telling you this, it totally matters that you repent of your sin today and you get right with God. And I don't mean this is something you can put off. You get right with God today because if you are living entrenched lifestyle of sexual immorality, I'm telling you, you're on a highway to hell. You are not on the road to heaven. Today's a day 
of salvation seriousness. Our Father and our God, I ask that the convicting work of the Holy Spirit would fall so heavy on us that no one who is trapped in this sinful practice could escape the oppression, the, the, the weight of the Spirit of God until liberty is sought through repentance, oh God. I pray that for your glory's sake, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your honor, I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.